Hi there. Welcome to another dish, a post-election dish. Major takeage, imminent, incoming. All the wisdom that I obviously showed to such an extraordinary extent last week in my column. Except, anyway, I agree. I misjudged this one. I'm totally frank about it. We'll talk about it later. Although the actual piece is really, I think, stands. I don't, I think there was... There is re reaction to democratic extremism, but I think it was mercifully tempered in the election by resistance to Republican extremism, too. And we ended up roughly in the middle, which I honestly, the longer it sits with me, the happier I am about it. It was a normal, normal midterm election. Democracy didn't end. But let's put that off for my discussion with my guest. The discount, I just want to remind you, is, of course the sister product of my global media empire, which includes The Weekly Dish, which comes out every Friday. I just wonder how many of you listening to podcasts don't have a subscription to The Weekly Dish, and I want to urge you to, please. We have just broken a new record for total number of subscribers. 125,000 people now get The Weekly Dish and this podcast in their email every Friday. But a lot of you come to the podcast from other directions, Check it out. Check out the weekly edition Substack. If you like it, please subscribe. Also, check out the new Substack by my guest, Damon Linker. It's called Eyes on the Right. And it is a wonderful, witty, fun, interesting, deep, and knowledgeable takedown and view of the American right today and in the past. And as you know, we're doing a series of podcasts that are trying to figure out what's going on on the right, what the new right is. And Damon is a real former insider, kind of, expert. And I have to say, just a great friend who actually has the misfortune of looking a bit like me. <laughs> kind of a lot like me. And so getting mistaken for me at times, which is a, which is a, a burden I, I, I feel terrible about. It, but anyway, Damon's here. Sorry. No, thank you. Thank you. you. I, it really isn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, eyes on the right subtack. Just to, just up front, that's that's where you can read him. You could also read his his book, The Theocons and the Religious Test. Theocons was was a book I was kind of fascinated by, and we knew we found each other around that time. In fact, just before that time, he was the editor of First Things and a senior correspondent at the Week, where he produced columns of extraordinary consistency and sanity at a remarkable pace. And back when the dish was at the Daily Beast and I was occasionally writing essays for Newsweek, that iteration Newsweek, Damon was my editor. We would commiserate about uh, uh, on Tina's latest obsession or direction. I, had, I remember I had one week off to visit my family once. Do you remember this, Damon? Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I hadn't, I, you know, I was doing the blog every day. It was incredibly punishing. I had just one week in England to spend with my family. Of course, the, the Monday morning, I get some frantic call from Tina that I have to, have to do this piece. And I was like, for God's sake, leave me alone. I think you were, but on, I had a, to were you on a train and you're like talking to her on the phone, on the train. It, it, it was, it was actually quite sad. I was like, yeah. Tina, let the guy have a week off. No, no, oh, no, we must, we must file this copy. Yes. <laughs> and it would be 
sometimes you just com completely misunderstand where I was coming from. I remember I, she wanted me once to do a piece on contraception. Right? Was it that? I don't remember. Anyway, I can't remember. It was there was a there was a there were there were many highs and lows with Tina. Mainly highs. I'm I I love her. She was a guest of the Dishcast. I think she was an incredible editor. She is an incredible editor, and a really great writer too. But she's also she's occasionally a little hard to work for. That's well, she's one of these works. these very impressive people that you know some of our not entirely wrong-headed impulse toward fairness and justice in our institutions and culture. We want to kind of sand off those highs. These people who are just very hard to work for, challenging, a little difficult, a little punishing. We want to say no. We 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 need to be nicer to one another. The problem is. If you're a little too nice, then you don't produce those, some of those those works of greatness. And Tina is definitely one of the great editors of our time. Yeah, I think that she and Adam Moss, um, my former editor, although I, I think Adam is the great. Well, in my lifetime, I think Kinsley is a great editor, just a fantastic editor, Mike Kinsley. I do think Leon Wieseltier is a brilliant editor in a different, very different way. Kinsley was always asking you, how much more could you take out of a piece? And Leon was always saying, how much more irrelevant stuff can you put in a piece? <laughs> this hasn't uh, broken 10,000 words yet. Come on. I know. What? what? Are you slacking? And who else? I guess Tina, definitely. And Adam. Those are the ones I think of that really do stand out. Um, my apologies to everyone else who might subsequently immediately offended forever. But Damon... Uh, Welcome to this cast, old friends and fellow warrior in the the camp of the conflicted moderate. I guess that would be yeah, who yeah. you are. Oh, right? absolutely. We we are in addition to looking somewhat alike, we are shockingly simpatico when it comes to politics and intellectual matters. We sort of come at it, I think, from from somewhat different backgrounds and have sort of overlapped left, right, theological, not theological, but always sort of coming back to a center. And I mean that both ideologically, but also dispositionally, intellectually. Yeah, so that in the end, we, we tend to, to view things in a very similar light, which, don't worry, listeners, will, does not mean we're just going to be boring and pat each other on the back for the next hour. I think sparks can fly sometimes, too. But there is, I think, in both of us, a real distaste for extremes and for radicalism of any kind there's a uh in that sense i think temperamentally well no not temperamentally but maybe characterologically the way i see the world especially the last several years was how do we get this crazy changes to slow how do we get this polarization to moderate how do we prevent this getting out of control this constant fear that things really could unspool yeah i i mean i really do one of the things that makes me in some ways a kind of conservative to this day is having a real empathy. And it's not just a kind of selfless empathy of imagining myself into the views of others, but but it's partly because I feel it in myself, a real empathetic understanding of the human impulse to or reaction to rapid change, feeling like when when especially cultural changes seem to be happening extremely rapidly that it is perfectly normal and understandable for not everyone but a lot of people to kind of recoil from this and say wait a minute i don't 
I, I don't feel comfortable with this. This is pushing me too far beyond the way I was raised to see the world. You need to give people time to catch up. And you, one should not be surprised when you push and push and push, and it leads to a kind of backlash. You, can, you should be able to anticipate this. Like, of course, people are not simply going to respond to the fifth version of the sexual revolution to be pushed onto the them within two generations by just saying, okay, now, now, now what's the latest word? What's the latest thing I have to accept as okay, even though it rubs against the way I was raised. So again, I think I and you, of course, in your own way, like are open to these changes and to new experiments and living, if you will. I love the line of Oakshot that you you used to quote, I think, on on the old dish quite a lot about how he he said that he was a conservative in politics so he could be a radical and everything else. I mean, there's a lot of that in me as well. But the, the first part of that little formulation about being conservative, there is a, I, I consider myself a liberal, but definitely a conservative liberal liberal in that sense, that you got to give people time to catch up. Similarly, I, I, I do regard myself as a, a liberal conservative <laughs> in, a, that in, in, the, in, the, in the sense that in the 21st century and late 20th in many ways, the conservative objective is to conserve liberal democracy as a very precious inheritance that has made our societies rarely in human history, a font of openness, debate, freedom, and all the other things that we have so easily taken for granted, but you only have to look at many parts of the world to realize how lucky we are to have them. One thought occurred to me about that, that thing that we share, which is a fear of destabilizing, is the other thing that I, I, we have in common, which is personally, and, and which is that you, you grew up in in a home where your mother had serious mental illness and uh, abandoned you, essentially, in a, in a mental breakdown. That's the words you, you used. Yeah. And basically, that's clearly the most early trauma in your life. It was the early trauma in my life, too, when my mother had a mental breakdown. And, and then your father stepped into the breach, your late father, whom I know just recently died. May he rest in peace. And do you think do you think that panic at disorder, at chaos, well, not panic, but discomfort with it, is partly partly comes from that early childhood experience when you when you when you see the world can break? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, the, if you had asked me that as recently as five years ago, I probably would have scratched my head and pondered about whether I really th thought that was true. But I've actually moved in recent years toward ever increasing awareness of the psychological underpinnings of our political commitments. And it's certainly true in my case that my commitments to a kind of uh, a, a kind of liberalism that tries to prize stability, order, a kind of background stability that allows civil society to flourish, individuals to flourish, comes from very much that early experience of seeing kind of chaos and instability and pain, and unpredictability is always there just lurking under the surface that you sort of can't take anything 
for complete granted in human life. And so if you have that stability, it's something very precious that you should really work toward preserving and keeping safe, warding off forces that could destabilize it. I'm also keenly aware of the way that that they, politics is very much a matter, I think, of balance, that if you push too hard from one direction, that is likely to inspire a reaction on the other side, which then will inspire a counter reaction from the original side, this kind of centrifugal force that you you wrote recently, you brought up kind of the, the Weimar parallel, I think it was in the last week's post, where I, I mean, I very much agree with that. I don't worry so much about it ending in a kind of dictatorship in a Hitlerian sense, but I do very much worry about the centrifugal forces of the left provoking the right and the right provoking the left. And each of those sides realizing in our polarized dynamic of a present that that they each benefit electorally by hyping the danger of the other side as much as possible at all times. And and so you could say my brand, if I have one as a thinker, as a writer, as a pundit, is is basically calm down. Even if I freak out, like I'm often freaking out. Like it, it's funny, I, I said I said this line about about uh, my brand being calmed down recently, and a friend said, "You know, that's exactly right." And I said, "But you know, it's also the case that the reason why I hold that view is because d in my inside myself, partly from that experience of childhood trauma, but also just dispositionally, like I'm a churning cauldron of." passions and drives and fears and anxieties. So inside, I'm sort of going crazy. I like, you know, the, the woke left says something and I want nothing more than to just shake my fist and scream and, and yell at them and sound like I'm a Trumpist or a DeSantist or something. But then I tell myself, no, like it is obnoxious, but it, it's not, not important enough to to, to validate that. So I'm going to restrain myself. And then similarly, on the other side, I think even more when you see Trump or other people on the right who, who behave in, you know, a combination of almost sociopathic and childish at the same time, I, I want to shake my fist at them and scream and yell and sound like someone on the far left. And I, the trick is to kind of take those, those very passionate reactions extract the insight and wisdom that you can from what I see from feeling that way, but channel it into reason as much as possible to try to think coherently with a level head rather than be impulsive in response to, to the feeling. You, you can't, can't allow unmediated feeling to drive things because then all the furniture gets smashed and you end up with a, a mess like I did as a child. Not literally. There wasn't any smashed furniture, really, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And I have so many parts of that I want to respond to. But I, I do have a question, though, and tell me if this is too much to ask. But so what happened to your mom? Well, she she was always a little unstable. There were a lot of very bad fights when I was very young, things that... I, I probably didn't fully understand as a little kid, but things where she would lash out, get very, very angry at, at my father in ways that didn't seem to make any sense, often about 
unpredictable changes in plan. Like my dad comes home and says in a very happy way, look, I got I got reservations at a little motel out in Montauk, Long Island for the weekend. Let's pack and we're going to leave right now. And she would flip out and be like, what do you mean? We didn't plan on that. And so she goes into a funk and screams and yells. And my dad ends up packing the bag and takes us all out there to Montauk. And she spends the whole weekend in the hotel room in the dark sort of weeping because she can't cope with the fact that this was an unplanned event. So those were bad signs, but they they were like islands of scariness in in a sea of largely normal behavior. But then when I was eight, we moved out to Fairfield, Connecticut from New York City, where we lived before, to a house. And it was quite far from the city, about 50 miles. So my dad had a very long commute and work on the train. And something about about being plunked down into a suburban house far from her therapist in the city, far from friends and other supports. She never drove because she was very anxious about driving, so she couldn't really go anywhere. And there were no taxis in little Fairfield, Connecticut in 1978. And within literally three to four months, she had a complete mental breakdown. And that occasional abuse that we would see started happening like every day. And my dad was away at the office all day and would come home and find that we hadn't been, nothing had been made for dinner. She had sent me to go to the store to buy groceries at age eight and then to put a TV dinner in the oven. And then my dad would say, wait a minute, you didn't, you didn't make the kids dinner. And she would scream at him like, I don't need you get out of here. And, and then it just got worse from there. And within we moved in February 78, 1978, and she moved out in June and uh, initiated divorce and they were officially divorced by September. So this whole thing happened in a total of eight months. She stuck around in town, living in a hotel for about a year, then left. And we received two letters in 1980, one letter and another one in 1981 from the West Coast. And that was it. So I never heard from her again after 1981 when I was 11. So my dad raised us entirely on his own, never got remarried, dated a lot. So there was, you know, some some mini traumas along the way with like kind of surrogate mothers coming into the household, trying to sort of win his his affection by being mom to us. And then they'd break up and they'd be gone. So kind of a series of women leaving, coming in, trying to be nice to us, my, my younger brother and myself, and then and then departing. So it was a it was a tough childhood. But and you know, my dad, as I said, in the, the eulogy I wrote for him, which is I think where you saw some of this, that's also posted on the Substack about a month ago. You know, he he tried his best made some questionable parental decisions along the way, but he always loved us and enacted that love all the time in simply being there, caring about our well-being, making sure that there was somebody there in the morning and at night when we went to bed. And that was by far the most important thing that we needed at that at that time and all the way through our childhood. So we were we remained very close with him, especially through his decline, because he, he had Alzheimer's and died of that. Thank you for sharing that story. It, it has a lot of resonance for me, because the other thing that happens when you have mental illness in your family, and it it's part of a toxic marriage, essentially, that can't be repaired, is that you are witness as children to 
horrible fights. I mean, horrible fights. And, and things that even for adults are scary, but for little kids, you just don't even have any idea how to process it yeah. or make sense of it. Yeah, you don't. You're just terrified yeah. um, and just want them to calm down. <laughs> there was a the one thing that we these things had a kind of pattern these fights but the language we were subjected to was pretty horrifying you know several doors in our house were permanently had holes kicked in them from the door slamming and then the kicking and the this stuff went on in my case for years and years and years it's almost as if listening to a spiraling conflict between two poles two axes in your life you could see how it can get completely out of control. You can also see how, and I feel this way in terms of America contempor in, in contemporary terms, that it feels like a red America and blue America are in a very toxic marriage with each other in which the fights become ever more horrible. Things said that cannot really be ever unsaid about the other side and also increasing delegitimization of the whole process, demonization of the other side. And then you get to this awful stage in a late marriage, which is just everyone's doing something out of spite. No one's at, people are doing things they don't even want to do really out of spite. They are defending things they really know they shouldn't defend because anything else would be conceding to those motherfuckers over there I hate. And <laughs> given that those motherfuckers over there have said lots of horrible things too, you can see why it's not entirely irrational and very human to respond in this way. But, but yeah, I but, mean, you, but, it's, a, it's a form of like clan warfare. And uh, we all know that clan, the, the distinguishing mark of clan warfare is you often have no idea what the original problem was, like what made me hate these people in the first place, because you have like 87 incidents of attack Yes. between that and today so like well wh why do we hate them over there well because we always have it's just the Remember way the 2000 is. election fraud this fraud that fraud right everyone has a bork. fraud every robert bork that's what started it <laughs> well it's actually not a bad argument for saying that uh, yeah. actually that was a really kind of amazing moment I well think. it's amazing yeah. to have lived through that and and to have been myself i was in college when that was going on and and the idea that that guy who everyone thought was so far to the right or a lot of people did he he now he's now like kind of a moderate <laughs> for the for judicial thinking on the right i mean i remember what, even back about... in, even back in like 2002 or 3 i edited a symposium a little symposium exchange in first things between robert bork and some guy i forget his name where the other guy was arguing that we need to protect fetuses under the 14th amendment and bork's position on that was you're insane there's nothing in the constitution about that that's not originalism and that guy that latter guy he was debating is basically the adrian vermule position the position of of lots of intellectuals on the right these days but then bork if i remember rightly in the late 90s wrote that book called slouching toward gomorrah 
Well, because he uh, became it, embittered from how he had right. been attacked in the hearings and didn't get his seat on the court. So he got personally radicalized in the way that so many others on the right have become radicalized by whatever slight it is that I, I know a lot of people who I respect and like in all kinds of ways on Twitter, on the right, who will very seriously make the case to me that all of this, meaning everything from like Trump on is a function of the fact that people said some mean things about Mitt Romney in 2012. Like, and I hear that and I'm like, what, what, so politics ain't beanbag unless it's Mitt Romney in 2012. And then some people make fun of him for putting the dog on the top of the car and, and for the binders full of women. And Biden says something about how you're going to enslave the people again and all that. It justifies, well, you know, of course, then we get Trump. And I hear that and I'm like, wow, that talk about a trivial, a trivial grievance at the root of all this. But yeah. Nonetheless, Damon, you you survived that childhood. You 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 seem to thrive, and 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 you want to study serious things. And you actually studied political philosophy with some Straussian professors, the followers of of Leo Strauss. And and nonetheless, was a I won't. I think it'd be wrong to call you a Straussian, but you do have. And I have, I think we have exactly the same position about Strauss, which is that enormous respect for that intellect and for the, and for the sense of re-energizing the idea that reading texts is about our lives today. That reading, reading Aristotle at Oxford as a weird piece of Greek history that we just read as a sort of, as a, as, as a, a sense of a historical artifact that we no longer had to pay attention to. And then doing it again with Harvey Mansfield at Harvard was a whole different experience. It was as if you'd gone from historicism to a really enlivening, interesting debate about what the good was, what the whole was, what our lives were for. And so that I really respect them for, but I could never be a part of the click. It never really worked for me, but it seemed that being a part of the clique was an important part of, of Straussianism. Yeah, it, it, it is strange. I mean, Strauss himself writes about the sect as a very important political, but also kind of intellectual phenomenon that like philosophers or people who are drawn to philosophy will gather together kind of in like-minded groups to think and goad each other on and teach each other. And he was very comfortable with that. In my experience, the, I mean, I do love Strauss, reading Strauss, at least the Strauss that that I understand. <laughs> there are many Strausses, and mine might maybe a little idiosyncratic to me, maybe a little closer to Isaiah Berlin and some of the liberal thinkers than others who, who read Strauss find him to be. But Straussians, although I'm I'm close with several of many of them, and I, I worked for a while bringing out books from Penn Press, and I brought out a, a lot of books by young Straussian scholars of a certain kind. And and I, I, I love their work and think it's important and should be encouraged and fostered. Some other Straussians, I mean, some of them have gone off and, and are kind of in the Claremont faction, who I think are pretty pretty radically irresponsible these days, intellectually and politically. And then others do, uh, kind of getting at what you were just alluding to, I think there is a, uh, 
there is a tendency among Straussians to become sort of ingrown and to adopt sort of self-validating premises where, you know, if you if you say to them, well, there are a lot of scholars who disagree with this reading of Plato that you're proposing here. Shouldn't we read them? And then their, their argument in response to that is, well, but they don't share our assumptions about how to read Plato, so we know they're wrong. So why would I read their work? I should just read other people who share these premises. And then if you say, well, but don't you want to look at the evidence? And then you then an argument will be launched about how, well, to really see the truth, one has to possess courage in one's soul. And the fact that they don't have the courage to question the premises that lead them to their contrary view of Plato means that that somehow they're not philosophical, but we are. So there's another reason why. Why would I read their stuff? I, I only want to read those who have the requisite courage. You 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 learn a lesson, or at least I alone, <laughs> among students. There are not a lot of students of Strauss who take this lesson, and it's a negative lesson. But my negative lesson has been that you know, as annoying as it can be, a lot of the modern academies. Um, uh, you know, attachment to things like peer review and and replication of research through rigorous methods that are applied equally to all are are important because there's a kind of underlying egalitarian assumption of it that like any human being who does the research impartially will reach the same conclusion. Whereas the underlying premise of a lot of Straussian reading is if you... <laughs> If you come to the same conclusion as Strauss does, then you're right. And if you don't, then you're, you're automatically wrong simply by very virtue of that failure, which is, again, a self-validating premise. It, it can't be refuted and ends up leading to a kind of cultishness where, where you only end up talking to people who agree with your, your underlying assumptions and you automatically cast out of the circle anyone who has other premises which shows that the danger of rejecting that kind of methodological egalitarianism of the sciences and you know i i'm i'm definitely one for being in favor of a genuine deep pluralism on these questions so i i'm not saying straussian should disappear and not do that anymore I am saying if you go into that world, you need to go in with an inoculation <laughs> to learn from it, engage with it. And I spend my, my, I mean, I was in grad school 25 years ago, and I'm still reading articles and thinking and, and reading their books and pondering these questions. But uh, I don't take the leap. I, I sort of, I was lucky enough to study with Mark Lilla before I studied with the deep Straussians. And he, he too studied with Mansfield. You knew him at Harvard. And he took a lot from the Straussians, but he also studied with Judas Klar, the great the great liberal thinker and scholar, and that helped to inoculate him. Plus, he had his own very interesting earlier religious conversion experience with evangelical Christianity, which he then fell away from, which created for his own his own insistence that he not take great leaps into capital T truth. And having him as a teacher helped me to have that inoculation so that I think a enabled me to learn a lot from Strauss and Straussians without ever fully drinking the Kool-Aid, as you were. Yes, Mark was 
Mark is uh, just an extraordinarily erudite, learned, but also really judicious thinker. And we were actually in the same seminar with Schlaw, and we actually did Aristotle with her, for example. For me, there was a there's 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 a there's a paradox here to some extent because when you follow Strauss's uh, extraordinarily skeptical view of texts, when you see him playing with ideas and thoughts, it, it, it's it's when he when you see his teaching that there might be an esoteric meaning behind this that we need to figure out, but we don't quite know what it is. I also remember that I was lucky to be with such a great Strauss in Harvey was that is the one of the first things I felt in his lectures was, and he said this quite simply, it's quite clearly, there is no such thing as a stupid question. These, mm-hmm. these, these basic, basic questions are precisely why we're here, the, the questioning the questions. Absolutely. It's a skepticism in Strauss that is belied by the certainty of certain Straussians, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. I mean... Uh, the, the the conviction is that the kind of super naive questions that a child would ask, why is the sky blue? Why is up, not down? Like, those are the questions of metaphysics, ultimately. And there's an encouragement to pursue those questions in a serious, rigorous, rigorous way and to follow what the great philosophical minds have thought about them. And that includes, you know, of course, primarily the moral and political questions. What is love? What is friendship? What is justice? Is it good? Is there a God? What does he want from us? What happens when we die? These are these are the questions that, a, a, you know, a four-year-old who's inquisitive would ask mom and dad. And, uh, you know, those are the questions that launch philosophy on its path. And Strauss, his his, one of his great contributions was keeping alive that kind of an inquiry and then viewing contemporary politics and the entire history of political theory through the lens of those elementary questions, making it alive. And as you were indicating at the beginning and talking about him, questioning, I mean, you use the very Straussian term of historicism. I mean, people, if they don't quite grasp what that is, you could just say it's the belief in progress. We all believe in progress. And and how do we know that we do? Well, you went to Oxford and studied Aristotle as a kind of strange artifact that would teach you about the culture of ancient Athens. But Strauss teaches, read Aristotle because he was a wise man, and a wise man is wise about the same stuff that we see in our world. And that means that there's no reason to assume that we know more than Aristotle, that we are wiser than Aristotle. So every great mind in history can have a conversation with each other. And that's a hugely liberating conceit. And I say conceit because I'm too modern and too attached to certain premises of our world to you know completely shuck the the view of of progress and knowledge clearly in some spheres of knowledge there has been a lot of progress and it continues but questioning it bracketing our belief in progress for the purpose of reading this old book is hugely liberating or at least it can be with a good teacher I was very lucky to have one, several actually, of different different kinds. The other paradox of Straussianism was that I would go 
to seminars and I would go to lectures and I would read books talking about the great goods, things you've just talked about, discussions about the whole, skepticism, questions upon questions. And that in itself could lead to any kind of politics, it, it, depending on how, what, how you finally answered the questions for yourself. But what amazed me was people would go from that seminar to passionate partisan politics, to fascination with the latest polls, to, to election night was for these philosophers, this obsessive nerd moment where all they wanted to do was study election results and all they wanted to be was in power and, and advising the Glaucons of their day, by which I mean the, the political leaders or the, 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 the conventional, more conventional people. And that just struck me immediately as, well, so they're, either, they're, they're insincere about one of these two things. They, they can't, th th this is a contradiction uh, otherwise. And those who were hardest to pin down politically, I think, turned out to be the wisest philosophically. And so, for example, I think it's, it's Harvey is, has, has actually sustained, I mean, with all sorts of provocations, uh, mischief, outrageous statements, all sorts, but nonetheless, this entertainment to a constant conversation as opposed to a lecture. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one way of putting it is, is that, you know, one of the, the marks of Socrates, who, of course, for Straussians is kind of like the or philosopher, they're all somehow measured against the standard of Socrates. And he, one of the marks of Socrates is irony, that, yes, he, he cares passionately about the truth, about justice, about how to live a good life. But when it comes to the affairs of the city, to the political agora, he sort of like looks at it with a smirk a bit, you know, not contempt, but and actually with quite a, quite a bit of empathy and, and desire to understand what makes everybody tick and what they say and do there that they care about so much. But does Socrates care about it in the same way as everybody else? Not really. He, he looks down on it a little bit. There's that kind of Olympian image of like him up in, in, in Mount Olympus. He's on Mount Olympus and he, he cares about and is interested in the affairs of men, but he looks and he sees them, you know, a little bit with bemusement about the things that people think are the most important thing in the universe, when, in fact, they are the affairs of people in this place, in this time, and they are finite, just as the lives of each of those people are finite. And, and that distance I try to use to inform my own commentary today. I find politics endlessly fascinating and uh, and humbling as well. I mean, we were we, we, we eventually, I assume, we'll come around to the just talk about the midterm elections that just happened and. You know, one one thing that I you know was reminded of for the 18 millionth time from this experience the last few days is we basically spend two months before a big election like the midterms, not even judging a Rorschach blot, but a kind of 
playing a game of telephone about the ink blot based on many, many polls that then get aggregated. So we're not even looking at the real ink blot. We don't get that until all the votes are counted at the end of the of the election. So we're like all looking at a smudged sort of like in indistinct blot up there on the wall and coming up with these amazing theories about what it means, why it's happening, who's going to do well, who's not going to do well and why. And we fight terribly about it, all about how we know what's right and the other person's full of shit. And then the election happens and then they count the votes and we get the results. And then we do that whole thing again about the more distinct blot, which actually is a fact. So this is how they voted. <laughs> and then we do that for months and project it forward to the next event. Like I was like, I think you've said, I saw a tweet of yours earlier today. Like I got this election really wrong. I didn't write a lot about how I was wrong. You did do a post that that uh, took a little bit more of a public stance on it. But if you've been following my Substack and my tweets, you knew what I thought. I basically thought, as you did, that we were going to get see the Republicans have a wave. The Democrats were going to get a big old spanking. Uh, the only question for me was, would it be kind of within the range of a normal midterm repudiation or would it be much bigger than that? So either 25 to 30 seats in the House going to the Republicans or 40 or more seats if it was a tsunami. And it turns out, nope. <laughs> That's not how it worked. And, you know, I worked I worked yesterday. I was writing while the votes were being cast. I worked on a 1,500-word op-ed. I hoped for the New York Times with an editor there. I basically pre-wrote a piece about that, <laughs> about the Democrats getting their asses kicked and why that was a, a terrible shame and showed they were wrong and this is what they need to do to do better later. Totally unusable, not salvageable, wrote it for the drawer. <laughs> it's never going to see the light of day. My poor editor was like, I'll read it over and see if we can salvage something from it if you want. I'm like, nope, don't worry. It's written for a different reality than the one we're living in today. And you know what? That was annoying, but it's so great <laughs> that I, that I, I was shown once again I don't know what the fuck is going on. Like I, I do, but like, I feel like I, I, I'm constantly having to revise and revise again and revise again with 57 variables out there, constantly shifting slightly in a million different directions. And, and that's what makes politics and studying it fascinating to me. But what's interesting to me, Damon, is that your response to it, well, the human response to getting something wrong is, is, is a certain amount of shame, a certain amount of embarrassment, and then an attempt to prove yourself right again somehow. <laughs> uh, bit, but, but, or just refusal to admit anything, which is quite common too. Yeah. Um, but then there's also the sense of, and, I, and I'm not saying this, just it's true that at some point you just chuckle it to yourself and remind yourself so this is, we were just talking about this very thing. We don't know. Doubt about the world is my deepest conviction. Right. That we know not enough. And in fact, you know, my book about conservatism was really saying the deepest divide in the world is from those that have 
a solid element of doubt to them and those that have absolute certainty. And I'm with the doubt people every which way. I've learned that the hard way, even though you can also have passions within that context. But when you're trying to figure stuff out, doubt is essential. And so part of you is like, huh, as you, you were giggling. I mean, yes. Well, isn't it great that suddenly again, reality has come and knocked me across the head and told me that I didn't know shit. Right. And, and worse than that, I, in my case, I don't, I, I mean, I was asked actually, by the way, to do a, a spectator column in London just before the midterms. And my response was, can I do one after? Exactly. <laughs> like, can we wait till we actually know we just, something? Can we like, and, uh, yes. Why, why do a column that's going to be like surpassed in, in 23 hours? I mean, what? Yeah, my hedge in the dish column, which wasn't a predictive column as much. It was really about my expression of my own anger at Democrats. Nonetheless, I hedged it a little bit towards the end, saying this might just be a minor loss for them, in which case, fine, great. But nonetheless, I woke up this morning. I didn't watch anything last night, got up this morning, and I was, I have to say, surprised. At some point in the previous three weeks, and you always remember this as a writer, because you, you, you go back and forth in your head and trying, about, trying to understand stuff, I did think, you know, what data do we have showing this is going to be a red wave? And then I looked at the polling, and I'm like, well, I don't believe polling anymore. I don't, I don't believe people pick up the phone. I don't, I, I, I don't try, I've stopped looking at the polls. So it was a kind of hunch. It in was which your it, emotions it, it, play a lot. It does, uh, and it maybe yeah. that maybe that in my defense, maybe that I'm right about certain things, but not that was only part of the picture. That other parts of the picture. So, for example, my gut level response to this result, apart from actually relief, which is kind of surprising to me, is is essentially that we've come back to the center a little bit. That, that in fact, the there was there was a response to Democratic Party extremism, but there was an equal and opposite response to the Trump, the MAGA Republicans extremism as well. And it checked itself. All this means democracy is working, right? Absolutely. I, I, feel, I feel good about the state of American democracy today, at least relative to the recent baseline. It does convince me that there, that I think I, I was going to write something a, a month or so ago saying this, and then I wasn't sure how to, to do it. But I mean, one of the themes through the run-up to the midterms for me really has been this feeling that I worry there won't be any electoral consequences for the Republicans doing the shit that they're doing. Like, you know, Roe v. Wade not only overturned after 49 years, but then so many Republicans in deep red states, like wanting to pass draconian restrictions to essentially ban it outright with no exceptions, rather than doing what DeSantis did, which was go for a 15-week ban or even down to like a 12-week ban. I think between 12 and 15 weeks in a lot of kind of the purple America, not the first, you know, not the most extreme blue like New York, California, but and then also not the deepest red, but a lot of areas of this country, I think that would be very good. It captures almost, you know, more than 90% of all abortions that happen. And, and it's a compromise where the preponderance of public opinion is on the moderately pro-choice side. Something like 60% of the country want it legal through the first trimester. That's where you want to be. And I got a little hung up 
about how the Democrats are probably pitching too far on the left side of that, and there would be some backlash. They wouldn't get as much traction from the issue as they might have. But in the end, I think a lot of a lot of Americans listened to how Republicans responded to the overturning of Roe and thought, you know, you're you're a nut. You're an extremist. Like, I, I, I can't vote for you. And that's a healthy thing in part because I don't want those people in power, but at a kind of second order level, because I want Republicans to to get a slap. They need to see that. They can't just push further and further and further right and not get punished, <laughs> not get a repudiation from the electorate. And that, I think, more than anything else, is the, the one thing that might have some success in bringing them a little bit back into kind of the broad center of American politics and rather than just careening further and further out to the, to the margins. Is it worth pointing out that getting rid of Roe v. Wade is the way to achieve was the way to achieve that? Well, that in fact, I, that having it having it as the Constitution meant that they never had to address the practical consequences of abolishing of 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 of, of banning abortion or restricting it further than it currently was, and suddenly it's a winning issue for Democrats. Yeah, yeah, and and also again, it can it can have the effect. Of you know, I was engaged in another Twitter debate today among with some pro-lifers on this subject, where someone was saying, "Well, you know, what happened yesterday wasn't you know because of Dobbs, the Dobbs decision." And I said, "Maybe so, but but I do think if more Republicans did what DeSantis did and actually go for a very modest restriction, I think then it might have just washed out and been a kind of." a mild blip in in the election rather than what turns out much to my surprise actually i think is something that that helped to power a really quite remarkable reverse of what you would expect i mean it really it, the, the the margins aren't enormous so it's easy to be like well i guess it just wasn't that big of a deal but it is true that the the only two recent midterm elections that are going to look in their outcome anything like this are the two Bushes, Bush 41 in 1990 and Bush 43 in 2002, both of whom had approval ratings in the high 60s when they either didn't lose many seats or actually gained a few. And so that means something big did happen. And it, it, it stopped the, you know, the fundamentals, as the political scientists say. Um, so. The right kind of slap was your kind of, and I think this was it, right? It was it, because it also made distinctions. The, the the election deniers did not do well. Key figures like Mastriano, Oz, failed. That in general, the the those who actually pre pre present, at least in my mind, a threat to democracy itself, the voters were able to see those people and deny them, especially the sectors of state that are designed to count the votes. Election deniers lost there too. The biggest loser of the night that everyone seems to accept, although we'll, we'll talk about this, was was Trump himself. That the election denial thing was not a factor in this election. Particularly, people have moved on from it largely. And he does, and his own kind of hyping up before the before the election and attempt to co-opt it in some ways, I think, did bring him back to mind at the last minute too for a lot of a lot of voters. So a pretty pretty healthy response yeah uh, 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 punished the 
the abortion extremists on the right, punish the election deniers on the right. Clearly, some someone like Kemp did very well in ways that other Republicans who we thought were going to do great didn't. I don't know what you think is going to happen in Georgia now. Well, I mean, I tend to think that Warnock will end up winning and the, they're going to have a runoff, it sounds like. And I think without with without other major Republicans on the ticket elevating Walker, I think he's probably going to sink. I mean, turnout on the right, I don't think will be that great. And plus, mm. Trump is going to be in the news for the next month constantly. And mm. so you, I think it will probably end up being a pretty narrow victory for Warnock, I would think. Mm. Well, kind of a replay of what happened two years ago in those two elections as well. But, you know, again, I could be wrong. Yeah. I, I mean, the one thing that I think I... I I would put a kind of asterisk next to what you just said is I agree that the election denying stuff got spanked in in this but Trump himself is in a different category because I mean my my Twitter feed includes a lot of conservatives conservative journalists pundits from the kind of reasonable anti-Trump center right all the way over through to the more extreme Trumpist factions. And except for the pro-Trumpists, the really committed people, pretty much everyone is furious at Trump for yesterday and ecstatically wanting DeSantis to take him down and destroy him. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I, I would not vote for DeSantis in an election, but but I would vastly prefer him to Trump as the nominee in two years. I think it would be much better for the country to have DeSantis over Trump. But I still don't see how we get there because Trump's support is not rational. These are not people, and there are a lot, they're roughly 50% of Republicans. They are not wedded to Trump in a way that will enable them to be sit, sat down by the editors at National Review and say, you know, if you think about it, clearly you might love this Trump guy, but he's a drag. And in the general election, he's the only Republican who can lose. And we need DeSantis because DeSantis can win. You don't have a conversation like that with a Trump supporter at this point. I don't think you even could in 2016, but the number of people who support him has grown since then. And they are not wedded to him for like electoral calculus reasons. They are wedded to him because they like a politics of telling the other side to go fuck off. And that's it. That's all that matters to them. The, the biggest fuck off imaginable is what they want. And, and I still am very skeptical that either that DeSantis has the cojones to pull off standing uh, up to Trump toe to toe and put him down. And then even if he did have the guts in the end, I don't know that he has the political skill to pull it off. Trump is really good. What if they stand up there on a debate stage. And again, who knows how soon there would be a debate. You know, Trump says he's going to jump into the race tomorrow. And I don't think DeSantis can do that when he just won re-election as governor of Florida. I don't think he can spend the next two years running for president already. He has to wait a couple of months, right? At least. Um, 
what is how does he respond when Trump stands up there and says to him the equivalent of what he said to Ted Cruz? Yeah, you know, your your father killed JFK and your wife is ugly. I mean, just the most gut level, visceral, ugly, personalized insult to his face. How does DeSantis respond to that? DeSantis, I think, is a very skilled politician. He's really good at it. He's figured out more than anyone else how to be a normal Republican politician with the content switched out for Trumpian populism. And he does that. But you know who can do that kind of thing really well is Carrie Lake. Now, she's someone who can stand up on a stage and come up with zingers and insults and just respond instantly in real time in a way that shows a true kind of demagogic talent. I don't believe that DeSantis can be a demagogue without, if you will, if you will, without a teleprompter telling him how to do it. And you can't fight Trump like that. So I I don't see how we get from here to there. I again could be wrong. I I am often wrong. So maybe it will be the case that DeSantis will run and he will beat Trump. We're going to see Trump go from 50 support to 45 to 40 to 35 to 30, while DeSantis goes from 25 to 30 to 50 and up to the moon. That sounds like a fantasy to me, frankly. I mean, I, I love Ross Douth, that great columnist. I like him personally. We're friends. I learn from him all the time. But I couldn't help but smile when I saw that his post-midterm column this morning in the Times was headlined, did DeSantis just become the Republican frontrunner? And I immediately remembered and did a Google search and found that in late October 2016, no, don't be cruel. Column, he wrote a column about how Marco Rubio had just become the Republican frontrunner. And I don't want to be mean. Again, I, I, I'm the first person <laughs> to own my mistakes. And Ross, Ross, you know, he would he would as well. He's a very honest columnist. And I, I love the guy, but this is this is one of the kind of career risks of of, of what we do, of looking at that Rorschach blot there on the wall and like getting down in the corner and looking at it from the side and saying, "Look, I see it now. That's what it is." I, I don't know. I don't see it. <laughs> I wish. I wish, listeners, you could have seen. Damon, dodge around <laughs> trying to confront this spectral Rorschach. But uh, yeah, well, it was, it was yeah, really I, quite I, spectacular. I gesticulate a lot. I'm a very physical no, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Damon, I agree with you that DeSantis cannot perform, really. He does not have that kind of liveliness or spontaneity around him. I think he's I think my own sense is that he's this this extreme populism, his ability to to take moments to tell the Trump base that he hates those people too. Like the the Martha's Vineyard thing, I think was a stroke of genius. And however horrible, it was nonetheless made exactly the point about the very people these people hate, the people who live on Martha's Vineyard in the summer. <laughs> sort of that way. The people in the winter are probably all voting Trump anyway. But I agree with you on that. However, I do think his victory was really quite shocking, a 20-point margin. I do think that the, his ability to resonate with non-whites who are 
pissed off about immigration and to some extent about wokeness is a good thing, an advantage that he has. I do think the election this year was 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 this this was basically we, we really we'd really like the extremes to take a break. I think that's partly the message of this election. So is it completely inconceivable? And Trump is I think Trump's, by the way, a sign of Trump's genius in dealing with DeSantis is that we know that Trump will come off in front of him like a, a clown, a performer. He will come off as rather dour and he can't seem to smile very well and he can't seem to be cheerful. Ron DeSanctimonious actually is a pretty good name. It's, it's Trump has that because the thinking of DeSantis as the sanctimonious, prudish, sort of dull person is actually... Again, like like most of his nicknames, he has a really good school ground sense for how you would really target the vulnerability of another candidate. Do you think that's correct? I I, I don't I don't hear that in the the, the sanctimonious thing. I I sort of agreed with a lot of a lot of liberal pundits when they first heard it, and were like, "Time to workshop that a few more days." There, Trump. Well, that's I think it was good. I th I I think he's I think I think he's got his flair for this. And I well, maybe. I, I mean, I I am not his audience. That is sure. So I could not be hearing what others are hearing. And I mean, I hear it, and I think. To ha half of Trump voters don't even know what the word means. But then again, I'm an elitist snob. So I, I just don't know what goes on in the head of Trump voters, really. But I mean, I will say that um, I agree with you completely that DeSantis's win was extraordinary. I remember when Florida was a swing state. I mean, it's always been close and sort of, I think, tilted to the right, at least for the last 15 or so years. But they voted for Obama twice. Hillary only lost it by two points. It's really only in the last cycle or two that it's really reached tipping point. And I think DeSantis has, has really pushed it past the tipping point. He's the decisive factor. The fact that Miami-Dade Miami is now like a red county, that's, that's crazy. And if you apply that success more broadly, DeSantis is the guy, and this is where I will again, I will now praise Ross again, that even though I, I zinged his column a little bit for the headline about, about him being the front runner, he had very, very good things to say that I totally agree with in that column where he talked about how there is a kind of nascent Republican majority out there that with the right person saying the right things and putting the puzzle together in the right way could could lead to 52% for the right in 2024. And I think DeSantis is the best guy to do it, except that Trump is in the way. That's the only problem now. So I will say I am very dubious that DeSantis v. Trump can end with DeSantis on top. But Trump is pretty obese. He's old. He's not healthy. He could die. He could have a stroke. I mean, look. the man is eternal. The man, man is eternal. I fear it's well, just, nothing I mean, will kill him. He, he can't literally be <laughs> eternal. I mean, I good genes, good genes. Good genes, yeah, and you know, uh, you know, over, overly cooked steaks with ketchup every day of the oh, week. Oh, it's awesome! This um, this is part of him I can actually relate to, like that the big the the Big Macs at the White House for all the I just, I love. Well, that that's shit. fine. That's People fine. do love, love that shit. I love junk food, but I just all I'm saying is is I, I don't I, you can't 
hope for it because there's no reason to expect it necessarily. But, mm-hmm. you know, that could happen. He could be incapacitated in some way. He could die. And if that happens, then I think the Republicans have dodged a massive bullet. And then DeSantis can just walk and grab the nomination and he could do extremely well against whoever runs on the Democratic side. And maybe we should talk about that. That's, because that's the other thing. We're going to have a – I think we're having a divided Congress. It's not completely clear yet. It isn't uh, clear. It, uh, it, it isn't we don't clear. have the final results. It's kind of nuts in a country like this. I, it, it is one of the weirdnesses of America that voting is such an unbelievable ordeal and that counting them is it oh no i i waited an hour yesterday in line which should never happen in a city like dc but anyway let's 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 assume trump is there and we've talked about how how the sanctimonious doesn't really (laughs) doesn't really have a good chance or you don't think in the dynamic well who the hell does i mean he's created a game which only he can win trump so you have to kind of change the game and my concern is that i just can't see biden running for election in 2024 without it turning into weekend at Bernie's in which everyone is just in permanent half cringe and also just no, absolutely no disrespect to the man. I think he's incredible for his age, but some level you can't run for re-election in your eighties. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, but then when I think of the alternatives, I'm like, well, who on earth would, would defeat Trump? I don't know. I don't have a good I don't have a good answer. Did, did you see the, the clip from Saturday Night Live last weekend or, or two weekends ago? I don't know when it was where it, they, they did a spoof on like a horror movie movie trailer. And there are like all these people in a house. And and then and the, the horror movie turns out to be that Biden is running and and they all freak out. And they're like, well, if not Biden, who? And they like go through Kamala Harris and then there's a guy staring at the wall and he says, I know, I know who can win. And he turns around and goes, Hillary. And they all go, ah, and they scream. <laughs> and then they go point to the wall and it's written in blood, Bernie. And, and then they scream because something gets shoved under the door and it says, Beto. And you just, you realize like, there's, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. And I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm very cheered by what happened in the midterms. But one downside is that the inevitable push we were going to see if it was a bloodbath was going to be Biden pushed to not run. And then I don't know what would happen. But that can't happen now. If he wants to run, he's running because he, he he's going to be he's the guy who oversaw the best, the best midterm showing for, well, for the Democrats and forever. And then for either party, since at least George W. Bush in the run up to the Iraq war in the wake of 9-11, it's just there's nothing comparable. So he's going to be in a very powerful position to say, look, I'm the guy. I'm, I was the guy in 2020. I'm still the guy. I can do this one more time. And I, I, both agree with your skepticism about his ability to pull it off at his age and with the weekend and Bernie phenomenon. But I would say as a, as a note of skepticism, I said that about him every goddamn 
Democratic debate in 2020. I would watch those deba- those debates, and every time my my column at the week in response to what I saw was, "There's no way Biden can win. He sounds like his mind is scrambled eggs. He cannot do this." And every time he would just stay up there in the polls, nothing would change. I listened to Fetterman unable to string sentences together and sounding so cringy, I like was turning purple watching the poor guy and assuming he was doomed and he won. So I think you and I and our fellow pundits and analysts overvalue kind of like verbal coherence and elegance to an extent that like we have a lot of trouble like understanding how other americans hear this stuff like they hear it and they're kind of like oh he sounds like my uncle bob you know yeah he had a stroke yeah he sounds like he's a good guy he'd be fine if he's if he's a senator whatever like they just it it doesn't offend them in the way that it offends me as someone who cares about being articulate and speaking well. And we saw this going back to the Republicans. Remember George W. Bush and his kind of chopped up syntax and then his father and all the comedians. No, it's him. not the syntax so much as the just the capacity at his age to just do the job and and or campaign for the job. Maybe he didn't have to campaign last time really much at all because of COVID. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it's sort of Andropov time for, for the United States. Maybe. Yeah, it, it is. It is a distressing aspect of our politics, this kind of gerontocracy that we have here. Like we just ran a, an election between two seventy somethings and now it's going to be between kind of late 70s, early 80s guy and. And I worry, too, because, like, I look at Biden and I think now I don't know if maybe Trump is eternal, but that guy's not eternal. I mean, Biden, Biden sort of comes off to me like someone who's already had some kind of, you know. But you also suggest that the scenario that you suggested could happen to Trump could happen to Biden, too. We could Absolutely. Lose. And then um, we and then we have Kamala Harris. And she, I think, w- would be like. That talk means about Trump wins. The, the yeah. Following. Oh, absolutely. She's she's terrible um, i mean really i mean and i don't are, say that you are just misogynist damon your misogyny is so near the surface it's just waiting for don't a forget to racist pass. she's a person oh, well, of race, color. You're a, well that's a vast idea she, she she's she's a, a menstruating person of color and she's a so, person with a uterus yeah so i think i mean I, and I, it's weird because I say that about her. It, it's odd. It's not an ideological thing, although much of what she spews is like sort of out of woke central HR department speak. But it's I, I sort of assume that if she's president, that she'll appoint roughly the same kind of people that Biden appointed and the whole machine would sort of hum along and do its thing, which was the case for voting for for Fetterman, which I did. I heard him and I thought, wow, it's like. Is he even going to be able to be a senator? And I thought, eh, he'll have a staff and he'll vote the right way. It's like it's a little bit more like a like a parliamentary system when you're voting for the party, not the person. It's sort of evolving into something like that. So it's not that with with Harris. It's it's truly that I think she's she's like has a kind of anti charisma. She's just everything she says sounds like overscripted she reeks of inauthenticity and yet combines it with a kind of over-the-top emotive emotive quality like she's 
affecting the authenticity, but that only makes it seem even more inauthentic. And, and you know, she's, she's the rare person who kind of has come in and her numbers have gone down as she's been more in the public eye. So I, she's a really weak choice. And I, uh, in, on my list of things that I, I really resent Biden for her, his, his choice of her as running mate is definitely not, was not his best moment. And we're now. No, sort and of apparently they, they obviously have n- no real chemistry together. In fact, it appears that the Biden wing and the Harris wing are actually kind of not that fond of each other. Right. Um, Although I suspect uh, that her, her whole entourage is this weirdly defensive, like bunker mentality because her numbers are so low and her press coverage is so negative. They're probably embattled and feeling embattled. And that might even extend to the West Wing, which, again, not a good sign. Now, if there were a true open primary, if Biden stepped down, I, I think she probably would lose. It would be an too. awkward moment for the left. I mean, it would be it would mean going after the menstruating person of color. And that would, of course, lead to charges like you jokingly hurled at me. And it would be a big old mess. But that's what the Democrats do. And I think ultimately most people wouldn't be paying attention to that part of it. And someone else would rise. Who that is, I really don't know. I think Buttigieg maybe would have potential if he if he's matured beyond two years ago, three years ago. I, I sort of can see how maybe from the right angle I could come to like him in an Obama-ish way. I especially liked him more after he decided that he would flip on being super woke with the other 16 people on the stage. Do you remember that? Like early on, oh. early on when, when they were so many people running, they had to do two debates. So you'd have two nights with like right. 10 or 12 people each. It was comically huge. All the people back then it was Biden who was running in the center and literally every other person was running to be the most left wing on the stage. And he was right there with all of them. But then at some point, I can't remember now offhand when sometime, I don't know if it was like February or March, or maybe it was even in the late fall before 2020, something switched and he sort of came over to kind of team Biden on the center uh, uh, along with, by that point, I guess, um, maybe there were a couple of others who were trying to do that. But at some point he realized, I, I, I'm not standing out in the crowd of 20 left wingers and I'm always going to lose out to Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and, and the others. So he flipped and became kind of a moderate stalwart. I remember he went after... Maybe it was that he went after Warren kind of on on Medicare for all or something at a debate. And I remember thinking, oh, that's unusual. He's actually trying to differentiate himself on the set in the center vis-a-vis the left. So if it's that Buttigieg with the experience he's gained by being transportation secretary, maybe. But, you know, I my know. one my one thing, I mean, I don't quite get. Judge, to be honest with you, even though kind of my perfect candidate in some ways, a, a sort of relatively moderate Democrat, looks the part, would be groundbreaking for the homos. But, and I do think the thing I most respect about him is that he went on Fox News and he debated on Fox News. In other words, he seems capable of engaging the other side. And I do think he is committed to liberal democracy in that sense, in a way that I find 
inspiring the way that Obama was. In other words, I will talk, we will talk, we will, we will not be engaging in mutual demonization, which I think right. would be a plus for people. Now, whether what, what would happen with him versus Trump is just, I have no bloody clue. No, uh, I don't either. But, but yeah, I, 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 I really don't know. But I do find it alarming that, that we don't see any Democrat that seems to have that, yeah, he could be, he or she could be president. You, you know who it's going to be, and we'll, I'll circle back yet again to Mr. Douthat, Gavin Newsom. I I don't know mm. if I could vote for that guy. I really I his not. his vision of liberalism in California is like dystopian to me, and and I wouldn't vote for the other. I wouldn't vote for the Republican to to make a positive vote against him, but I would definitely either sit it out or vote for a third party in that case. And and my gut, which again is often wrong, my gut tells me he he would not travel well. He's a, he's a product of deep blue culture and politics, and he can only be popular in that kind of an environment. He would be like, he would be the ultimate kind of culture war exemplar on the other side. And for that reason, when it when there's a culture war argument, and I don't mean, I, I want to put abortion in its own category, because in that case, you're actually talking about a human life. And so I, I treat that as almost like a meta culture war issue that's in its own category. But aside from that, on the culture war issues, if you put left against right in this country, the right's just going to win. And, and if it that, were DeSantis Newsom, which actually would be a fair representation of the next generations of both parties in a way. And that was Ross's supposition yeah. that like oh, that, that contest would be the perfect sort of uh, acting out of our conflicts as a country. I think DeSantis would probably completely kick his ass. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. But then again, I also I have to be honest that I do deal with politics at a fairly high level of intellect and ideas. And so I'm not the guy to go to like, you know, who's who's the Democratic senator or governor who's the great talent out there? You have to ask someone like Bill Galston about that, I think. I, I, there are people out there who I maybe I'm not aware of who maybe who did really well yesterday who will now be elevated like the the colorado guy polls polis polis, um, Jared polis yeah, yeah i mean he did very very well and he did, uh, he did well actually, during covid he wasn't yeah. uh that's the one issue by the way DeSantis could attack trump on from yes. the right <laughs> but if, i just don't think it works i, I don't I, think it, it does it either work. not three years out from when the mistakes were made in the trump administration if they were mistakes on that yeah i don't i don't see that really getting people going especially again when trump's rebuttal to that will be yeah go to hell you pussy which is really all trump would say and like and then the crowd would go yeah man he said pussy i mean again <laughs> elitist this is this is how it looks to me do you, however, as someone who, like me, has been worried by the erosion of liberal democracy, feel better today, the day after the election, than you did the day before the election? I do. I definitely do. Feel better? I feel better, yes. I, I mean, not, not in the big sense. I think the problems that had me feeling worse yesterday are still there. The centrifugal forces of our time remain, and things will get bad again in all kinds of ways. But it was hugely cheering to me to 
first of all, to see the, the Democrats do better than expected substantively, because I, I am, if not a devoted Democrat, I'm definitely an anti-Republican. So, but through the rules of, of algebra, that means that I, you know, two negatives make a positive. So, so I am a de facto pro-Democrat and I'm pleased. I mean, and in my own home state, my God, my governor is going to be Josh Shapiro instead of Doug Mastriano. I mean, how can I not be cheered by this? Doug Mastriano. And, that that, and the margin of victory was much bigger than Fetterman's. Yeah, I mean, I would have preferred 30 points, but 13 is pretty good. I mean, it, in yeah. my ideal America, it would be 30 points because the number of people who would vote for Mastriano would be like 18 percent. It but, also feels to me as if the that they have not so far touch touch wood been huge controversies over the results right. that in general people have conceded which i think is incredibly important to our democracy obviously this i'm not sure we have the data on the turnout yet but it seems to have been a healthy turnout on both sides it seems we may be even going to higher levels of participation than we have in the past if only because it's, we hate each other so much but that is hate is often a great motivator to get to the polls but i just felt like having a normal election and going through the processes, have the results accepted, see a complicated result, see a relatively evenly divided country. This feels normal to me. It feels much more normal to me. And it that does. is, and, and, and Trump is the wild card, of course, creating chaos wherever he goes. But that, I feel it was, I saw a tweet to this, to this extent, which was that the normies kind of beat the extremists this time around. And that we may, this is my one feeling about Trump, the mood, the mood may shift. Now, if you're in the right mood, if you're really angry, you really think the whole system, there is a way in which he appeals to. If, you, if, if the mood shifts and people really don't want that kind of in-your-face politics, if it's beginning to feel a little tired and extreme and Trump just keeps getting crazier and crazier, I don't know. Maybe there'll be a change of mood and Trump, Trump, if you if 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 DeSantis can offer himself, say, look, I can I can fuck with the liberal elites. I can I, I, I take them on. I have the whole woke thing that Trump really didn't give a shit about. And I can run. I can run the country. He can't. I don't know. I mean, I do think we have a year or so for that to sort itself out. If I if I were Republican, I would obviously vote for DeSantis over Trump in the primary. And my concern basically is preventing Trump's re-election at all costs just because of the damage it will right. do to us. Well, you never know. Again, we, we adjust our priors and our assumptions based on new information. And it is certainly the case, you know, we don't need yet know either exactly why yesterday turned out the way it did. Why did Republicans underperform across the board at every level across the country? We talked earlier as if, as if it were the case that abortion and Dobbs was a big factor, and I assume it was a factor. But who knows, maybe the way the right responded to Nancy Pelosi's husband getting attacked made a lot of people think like, what the fuck is going on in this country? These, this party is just insane. I want to live in a country where if the Speaker of the House, even if it's the other party, and I don't vote for those people, and I don't like Nancy Pelosi, but if the Speaker of the House's husband gets attacked by a hammer, I want everybody to say that's sad and bad, and I'm sorry, and, and we're horrifying. Americans. And yes. horrifying. That like, and not instead make 
dumb incredibly and not and i'm not even talking about the kind of fringy conspiracy theories about how he was this gay lover and he was in the house and that stuff i'm talking about just like candidates for these offices that just lost yesterday saying in front of crowds making jokes about like oh nancy pelosi has the gavel looks like she's trading it for a hammer haha too soon and like i think i wouldn't be surprised i won't say yeah I but think, that's that's i don't about know a- but I, that's what but that's, that's what you're talking shift. about. Yeah, that's yeah, what, that's a mood that's shift. what you're like, talking about. I am. There's a point at which it's just become so disgusting. Uh, the rhetoric is so despicable. You feel absolute horror for them. I mean, and and that's certainly the case with that. But interestingly, Trump actually said what happened was horrible. That was the right. word he used. So he actually was not as <laughs> disgusting as some of these these in it for the lulls. Right it's true. I mean, you remember when the Supreme Court justice who who died, Ginsburg, when she died so close to the last election, you, you've seen this video where he comes off the plane, he's on the tarmac, and a, a reporter comes up to him, shoves a microphone in his face, says, do you have a comment on the death of Justice Ginsburg? And he, he hasn't heard this because he just landed. And he says, oh, she really? She died? I didn't know that. Well, and then he, of course, he's not that articulate. He has no ideas in his head, so he doesn't say anything particularly thoughtful or interesting, but he says the appropriate thing, some version of, oh, that's sorry, she was an amazing figure. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that. And he walks away. Like, that's what the president's supposed to say. So like, yeah, you're right that the people who try to ape Trump are 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 bad even at that like he has enough wherewithal despite his insanity and and cretinous character in all kinds of ways that like he has enough political sensibility and about you know appropriateness that like i'm the president i don't say well who cares if she died she sucks hey we get a justice like you could imagine (laughs) one of these other people saying that like mastriano might say something like that but but Trump had an enough wherewithal to say something like the right thing. I I just think a mood shift might be in the offing. I see Boris out in Britain and I watch the 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 House of Commons PM's question time. It's just thank God two sane people are having a debate without any without on the merits. And yes, there are all sorts of it's the House of Commons. So, but it wasn't just like I can't believe a word this person is saying. But they'll vote for him anyway because he's he's figured some shit out. That is that I I we may be we may I don't want we may be moving inching back towards some sort of desire for normalization. I certainly think these elections suggest that. I certainly hope so. But as one last wrench in the works on that, remember the the path runs through the republican primaries <laughs> and and what you're talking about as a mood shift has to happen among those voters it, it, i mean it might be that there are a lot of kind of sort of angry irritated independent swing voters who you know voted for trump and now simply don't want to anymore that would mean that he'd lose worse in the general election in 2024, which I think is the likelier outcome that he loses again, though he might not. You never know. But the primaries, that's the thing. There has to be what we have not seen yet, which is a kind of thawing of that 
constant stream of vituperation, rage, indignation that is constantly stoked by right-wing media sources from high to medium to low, you know, Tucker Carlson every damn night of the week, kind of shoving coal into that oven. He's decided that's how he makes his money is by doing that. That somehow that circuit that is that was put in place first by Rush Limbaugh, then by Fox News, now by Trumpified Fox News, plus all the, the further right, OAN and Newsmax and all those things, plus the online stuff. There's such an infrastructure kind of designed to keep the right in a constant state of delusional rage. I, the mood shift has to somehow throw cold water on that. But if it doesn't, and if Trump is the nominee, then it seems to me absolutely vital that the Democrats come up with someone who is able to portray him or herself as not entirely the captive of the left extreme. Exactly. Take, takes it, take an issue and really do something with it. Move to the center on crime, say, in some kind of way, on immigration. Some kind of issue which could tell the middle of the country, you don't want Trump, but I am not going to be a crazy lefty either. And that, I, is, that I could see. That I could see. And you've written about the mood shift uh, on in that facet of things. And I think that you probably are right. I see it uh, kind of in the journalistic world from what's his name at the Washington Post who had his big mea culpa. Oh, yeah, actually, I was wrong about, about James Bennett's firing. That's one data point among others of people who you know, went a little crazy. And that was a crazy moment. You had Trump, you had COVID. We'd been locked up for for the last two or three months. It was warm weather. Then you had the George Floyd video. And there was this explosion of rage. And then Trump kind of egging it on and provoking it. And, and we lived through it. And people went nuts. And I do think we have come back from that to some extent. The question will be if Trump is the nominee and he's doing that same kind of goading and provoking and owning the libs constantly every day for what now could be two almost two years if he jumps in next week or so. Can the left keep its head? Can the people who run the Democratic Party who have to kind of keep their eyes on where the center is, which, you know, all applause to them. They did a, a very impressive job this cycle, this midterm. Will they keep their heads? Will they know where to come down? I could totally, in the, in the present moment, I could totally see that happening on crime, on immigration, on some issue, on trans issues. Although I think that's as much as you and I get agitated about that i think for me at least for you it might be because of of you know gay stuff and the fact that like homosexuality is a category is being sort of erased <laughs> in favor of of trans everything so you know if you're if you're born male and you like men that must mean you want to be a woman like instead of being a gay man so that's a threat to things that matter to you very deeply. And it matters to me too, but not in the personal way it does to you. But I think for me, it's more almost a philosophical thing that I, you know, I'm all for trans rights. I know trans people are out there and have been for a 
forever. And I listened to David Bowie on the cover of the album in a dress and I didn't give a shit. And I think it's kind of fun. And I worked for Giuliani when he would go dress up every year as a woman and do a drag show on stage. There are pictures of him and Trump in his usual suit laughing with his arm around female Rudy Giuliani. You know, this is just all normal. And it's kind of crazy to get up in arms about it. But, you know, the, the, the fringes, which have a lot of influence on the trans left, you know, they're pushing certain philosophical assumptions about the fluidity of ourselves, gender, identity that, that are really quite extreme. And I simply cannot affirm as true. And I will not affirm as true. That's, and to be honest with you, that's really where I'm coming from, that, that, that I support basically almost every trans right? They're imaginable. I think minors are a completely different issue with that as they are with every subject. You have to take children differently and be very clear. And my only concern there is that we be extremely careful. And I see that we've actually been extremely careless. And there's a certain amount of ideological fervor that's bound up in that. Uh, I, I am not someone who is looking for a fight on trans issues, au contraire. And I'm not even in favor, and I'm against all these bills banning the stuff i am i just it's again we're stuck in the middle i want there to be really good research i want trans kids to be helped i want kids with gender dysphoria to be helped but i just don't want to misdiagnose people for ideological reasons or or or, or do things for children they really really can't well, the thing no, is that, that I mean, talk about a vibe shift. I mean, a cultural shift. I mean, in Europe, in Australia, New Zealand, yeah. medical establishments are backtracking on this. They realize they went too far too fast, and now they're reining in the protocols for which yeah. treatments should be tried and how quickly. And that opens space for the Democrats to, to follow yeah. them. It and does. I'm, I'm, I'm disheartened that the Biden administration hasn't done it well, yet. I think but, they're, uh, maybe they're they captive will. to the donor class among the Democrats are a huge problem. That's, <laughs> the, don the donor class are far to the left of almost anybody in this country, and they have shitloads of money, and they call the shots, and yeah. they police dissent very, very effectively. Damon, we've ranged across a lot of stuff, from Straussianism to the metaphysics of doubt to the uh, epistemology to of faith, to your mom, to my mom. We should have an entire podcast on mothers living, growing up with mothers with mental illness and bad marriages. <laughs> but it's so lovely to have you here. Thank you for, for, for going back and forth with me. I'm digesting what happened. I will be uh, producing some kind of result of that digestion on friday so good luck with it if you you probably if you're listening to this you have the weekly dish you can check out my attempt to uh give an accounting of what i got wrong the things i still think i'm right about the things i was wrong about this friday and i'm sure that I, we already have an avalanche of reader emails telling me to go fuck myself anyway which is the joy of being well, that's normal, head. right? It's yeah. totally normal. <laughs> we totally embrace it here at The Dish. We, the, the harsher, the accurate criticism, the better. I'll take it. I know. I know. And I should be grateful for it. And, and at some level in my mind, I am grateful for it. Although, of course, we're humans and emotionally we... We always feel bad. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to take. But you've you've done such an admirable job over the years of creating a space where that's kind of expected. You well, yeah. print the, the harshest criticism to put you in your place and have something to push back against and advance your I, own thinking. The one 
Thank you. The one great thing about the dish and the weekly dish now, as opposed to just having a column where you just have random comments, usually obscene or whatever afterwards, is that you can put forward a, an aggressive idea knowing that the readers know it will get pushed back the following week so that so you're never quite out on a limb. You're always capable of being dragooned back in. And I learned over the years of doing this, it's 30 years of, of trying to write about current events, that, that you don't know, you will get it wrong. There's nothing inherently shameful about getting things wrong if they're on, mistakes honestly made. The only thing shameful is denying them and not trying to figure out what you, where you went wrong. Anyway, in that spirit, if you've enjoyed all this, please subscribe to The Weekly Dish. We have some amazing guests coming up. We have Robert Draper to talk about his new book about the history of the radical right. Alyssa Rosenberg from the Washington Post, a liberal to, 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 to have a fight with. Glenn Lowry, the great, eternal Glenn Lowry. Finally, we're going to have a chat. We've been a long time. And then we have Carl Truman, who's written this rather interesting book. I don't know whether Damon's checked it out about the modern self. So I have not. It's really an attack upon liquid modernity and and in part, my responsibility for bringing it about with the hideous, hideous reform of marriage equality, which, to which I am now allegedly responsible, and which has obviously led to um, all sorts of madness. So I'm going to have a nice... I credit you with it, Andrew, all the time. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I, I'll be good. And then also the, the brilliant Kyle Harper, who has written the most interesting takes on plagues in human history. He's going to come and talk about the impact of viruses on our lives and on the past and potentially even more on the future. So that'll be thrilling, won't it? Please subscribe to The Weekly Dish. Thank you, Damon. Thank you all for listening. Hope you take my mea culpa this week with the generosity with which is offered. <laughs> and love you all and see you soon next week. Bye-bye.